0: You are now listening to The Last Day's Return of the Historic Faith with your host, Pastor Jeremy Anderson and Brother Matthew Marcel. This podcast is for the kingdom, Christian, in the end times. As aliens in a foreign land and ambassadors of our king, we proudly fly the flag with the cross as we sing. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Grace may be the most misunderstood word in the Bible. If you can define the terms, you win the argument. This principle, which law students all learn in law school, is no less true of Biblical doctrines than it is of legal cases. In fact in so much of life, everything turns on how you define a word. This is why there are so many different denominations within Christianity who have so many, different doctrines. Whoever defines certain key words also defines what Christianity teaches. It's that simple and it's that scary. However Christianity differs from law in a very fundamental way. In the law if you convince a jury that your definitions are the right ones then you win. However with Christianity if you convinced Christians that your definitions are the right ones then you may win. Some followers, but if your definitions are wrong, it doesn't matter how many people that you convinced your definitions are correct in life because you will lose for all eternity. So when it comes to defining key words in the Bible, Whether or not we can convince more people that our definitions are correct then the next guy means absolutely nothing. All that matters is what is true. In Protestant, Evangelical Christianity there are few words that have more meaning or are even as important as the word grace. Our English word grace is actually a translation of the Greek word charis. The word grace, particularly prevalent in Paul's writings, has become a favorite word in modern Protestant scholarship, but most dictionaries present it as a highly nuanced, deeply theological word. In popular, Christian culture, the idea of grace as unmerited favor has gained great traction. Is this the historical understanding of the word? If not, how has the idea of grace been hijacked, and what are the consequences? Since there were no ancient dictionaries we can look in. Is it even possible to know what the historical understanding of grace was? Yes it actually is possible to know what their historical understanding of grace was in the days of Jesus and the apostles. The only way that we can know what the ancient understanding of the word grace was is to go to the writings near and around that period, particularly the writings of the Jews and Christians. For any New Testament word the three most valuable resources that we can go to to understand the meaning of the word as it was used. By the first century Christians are number one the Septuagint, number two the New Testament itself, and number three the early Anti-Nicene Christian writings. So to understand the historical New Testament understanding of the word Chiris we should first look at its use in the Septuagint is used over 80 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint. That's, twice as many times as it's used in the New Testament, so we can get a good feel for the historical meaning of the word charis by reading the passages in the Septuagint that use it. Now when we look at the passages in the Septuagint what do we see that it means? Well most of the time it just means favor or goodwill particularly favor extended to someone by a person of greater authority to one in, a weaker or lesser position. Now this favor could be unmarried but usually there is a reason why this person is receiving favor or goodwill from the person in greater power. Example of this from the Septuagint is when Noah found cherries with God because of his faith and because he was living righteously in a wicked world. Another example is Joseph. He found favor with Pharaoh and with Potiphar because of the wisdom God had given him. Ruth found favor or cherries with Boaz because of the way she treated her mother-in-law. Esther found favor with her husband the king because she was beautiful both inwardly and outwardly. In fact I didn't find a single instance in the Septuagint where cherries meant unmerited favor, it just meant favor or goodwill. Now does that mean or am I saying that we can do something to deserve God's grace or earn our salvation? Not at all but if we are going to find the correct historical understanding of any New Testament word, we must begin with a blank slate and we absolutely must leave theology out of it. If we do not then we will read our theological misconceptions into the definition of "is any Greek word in the New Testament. The fact that there is, probably no other New Testament word that carries the amount of theological preconceptions today than the word grace. But anyone who looks at the word in the Septuagint will immediately see that it carries no theological attachments. It's just an ordinary word like mercy, kindness, peace, or humility. Okay, now let's look at the use of cherries in the New Testament. We actually first come across their word in Luke's writings. In Luke 1:27:30, we read, The Virgin's name was Mary.28 and having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you, blessed are you among women. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Luke 1 27 30 The, the phrase highly favored is a form of the word cherries. And when the angel tells Mary that she has found favor with God, he uses the word cherries. So we can see from the very first two uses of cherries in the New Testament that it still has the same basic meaning it has in the Septuagint, favor or goodwill. Continuing in Luke, we read, after Jesus' birth, 39 So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth.40 And the child grew and became strong in spirit filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Luke 2 colon 39 40, nkjv, there, we have the same word cheris, with the same meaning of favor. The favor of God was upon him. But now the translators decide to render it as grace. A few verses later, we come to Luke 2 52, 52 and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God in men. So now, the translators go back to translating cherries as favor. Is this honest? Next we come to the passage at Luke 6 colon 32 34. Three of the four times that Jesus uses the word cherries are in this passage. I'll be reading from the 1769 KJV, although I'm going to use you instead of ye, 32 for if you love them which love you, what thanks of you. For sinners also love, those that love them. 33 And if you do good to them which do good to you, what thanks of you? For sinners also do even the same. 34 And if you lend to them of whom you hope to receive, what thanks of you? For sinners also lend to sinners, to receive as much again. Now there, the translators have translated cherries by the word thanks. But Jesus is obviously using cheris in the sense of reward. I say this because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said virtually the same thing, but there he used the word mesthos, which means reward saying, what reward have you? This is similar to the way the word cherries was used in the book of Esther concerning Mordecai's reward. So why didn't the King James translators render it as reward? Well. This illustrates the problem with virtually all of our Bible translations. Luther made grace, or one of the central words of Christianity, with the fictitious meaning of unmerited favor. We are told if we have to do something first, then it isn't grace. As a result, translators attempt to hide the use of the word grace or when it's used in a sense that would disprove that notion. To me, this is spiritually dishonest, and it has helped to perpetuate the myth about grace or cherries. Paul's use of the word cherries I've mentioned that Paul uses the word cherries twice as much as all of the other New Testament writers put together. In other words, 2-3 RDS of the time when cherries is used in the New Testament, it's in Paul's writings. Yet, all of Paul's uses of cherries fall within the five basic meanings of cherries that I've just mentioned, Let's look at some of his uses of the word. Over a fourth of the time, when Paul uses cherries, he's using it in the greetings or closing of one of his letters. Paul's typical greeting in his letters is, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, or something similar. There, Paul is simply using juries in its ordinary meaning of favor or goodwill. I feel, that translators should render his greetings as favor and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Or goodwill and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To translate it as grace, means to essentially leave it untranslated. Chiris was an ordinary, everyday Greek word in Paul's day. But grace is not an ordinary, everyday word in today's English, unless you're talking about elegance. Something graceful. Other than that, our English word grace is almost exclusively a theological word. But Paul didn't write in theological language. 2. Second. A lot of the time, Paul uses chories to express his own goodwill toward God. When he does this, instead of translating juries as grace, most translators render it as thanks. For example, in Romans 7:25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul actually says, Cherries to God. So why don't the translators render Cherries as grace in verses like that? It's because if they translated Cherries as grace, it would reveal that Cherries is not this theological super word that describes all of the many things that only God can do. It would show that Cherries can refer to favor or goodwill we humans have because of something done for us. In short, it would reveal that juries does not intrinsically mean unmerited favor. Protestant proof texts but what about all of the proof texts that Protestant evangelicals throw out? Actually, none of these proof texts work unless we totally ignore the context of Paul's letters. Luther would have us to believe that the big problem in the first century church was that people were living godly lives, but they had their theology of salvation mixed up. They thought their godly living was essential for their final salvation, and Paul had to straighten them out. But where in the New Testament do we read about any such problem? Both in Acts and in Galatians we read about the big problem in the New Testament church. That was the fact that many Jewish Christians insisted that the Gentile converts had to be circumcised and live by all the regulations in the law of Moses. Paul runs into this everywhere he goes. So he fights against that notion in most of his letters. He continually argues that we cannot be saved by the law of Moses or the works of the Mosaic law. When he says, that works play no role in our salvation, he's referring to circumcision and to the works or regulations of the Mosaic law. How do we know that? Paul himself tells us at the beginning of his letter to the Romans, Romans 2-6, God, will render to each one according to his works, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish, on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. Romans 2 to 5 11, NKJV, so Paul is not saying that how we live plays no role in our ultimate salvation, that is, in our future salvation. He says very clearly that it does. And he states his basic thesis in Romans, which is there is no partiality with God. It doesn't matter if we're Jew or Gentile. In contrast, when Paul denigrates works, his context clearly shows he's talking about circumcision and other regulations of the Mosaic law. Everyone in the early church understood that, except for the Gnostics, and they weren't part of the church. Incidentally, your translation may say that God will render to each one according to his deeds. This is simply dishonesty on the part of the translators. Paul though uses the exact same Greek word, ergon, ergon that is otherwise translated as works throughout Romans. However, Romans 2-5.11 totally destroys their notion that our salvation has nothing to do with doing good. Paul explicitly states that it does, as do Jesus, James, and the apostles. So the translators use the word deeds to hide the fact that Paul uses the word works in two very different senses in his letter. But there are two different kinds of works. In Romans 2, where Paul says we will be saved in accordance with our works, he's talking about godly obedience to Christ. When he later says we won't be saved by works, he's talking about circumcision and the works of the Mosaic law. Romans 4 Probably the most often quoted passage about works and graces Chapter 4 of Romans. So let's read the first part of that chapter, 2 For If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God.3 For what, does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. For now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace but as debt. 5. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, comma 6. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, colon 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered, semi-colon 8. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. 9. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only? or upon the uncircumcised also. Romans 4 2 9, NKJV, the main issue here is the term works, not the term grace. What does Paul mean by works in this passage? I think we can narrow it down to two possibilities. It can mean the works he mentioned earlier in Romans 2, which he calls patient continuance in doing good. Or it can mean works of the Mosaic law. So let's plug in the first definition and see if it fits. 2 For if Abraham was justified by patient continuance in doing good, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Three For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed, God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. For now to him who patiently continues in doing good, the wages are not counted as grace but as debt. 5 But to him who does not patiently continue in doing good but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Do you really think that's what Paul is saying? Do you really think that Paul contradicted himself, just a page later after telling us that God gives eternal life to those who patiently continue in doing good? Do you really think God doesn't want us to patiently continue in doing good? And if Paul is talking about godly living... Why does he end that passage by talking about circumcision? What does that have to do with it? But since Paul ends the passage by talking about circumcision, let's try plugging in the keeping the Mosaic Law as our definition of works and see what we get, Two for if Abraham was justified by keeping the Mosaic Law, he has something to boast about, but not before God.3 For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. For now to him who is keeping the Mosaic law, the wages are not counted as grace but as debt. 5. But to him who does not keep the Mosaic law but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness that gives us quite a different meaning, doesn't it? This meaning fits the context and it doesn't contradict what Paul said earlier in Romans two. More importantly, it doesn't contradict our great teacher, Jesus. But doesn't it say that if we do something, then, it isn't grace? You may ask. Not at all. In fact, what Paul says perfectly fits our definition of grace as a favor. As I said earlier, if I agree with you that I will mow your lawn for $75, and I mow your lawn, you owe me $75. It's a debt, it's wages. You aren't doing me a favor when you pay me. However, if just out of love for you, or out of kindness, I mow your yard for you, and you give me, $100,000, that's not wages. That's a favor. That's cherries. If you can perfectly keep each and every regulation of the mosaic law throughout your entire life, without stumbling or failing even one time, then congratulations, you've just earned eternal life. But no one except Jesus has ever done that. So we have to look to grace orcheries. 1. The first stage, or past stage, of our salvation is what, the early Christians call the grace of repentance. This is totally unmerited and undeserved. God offers the opportunity to repentance to everyone, regardless of how ungodly their lives are, or regardless of the fact that they are openly fighting against him. If you try to earn your salvation by keeping the Mosaic Law instead of repenting and surrendering your life to Christ, you'll lose out on eternal life. Because you'll fail. You won't ever become a branch on the vine of Christ by keeping the Mosaic Law. 2. However, after we are converted and baptized, and have become a branch on the vine, God requires us to cooperate with Him in producing godly fruit. Jesus explains this to us in the 15th chapter of John. This fruit doesn't grow automatically. Otherwise, God would not punish us for not producing it. Yes, we play a role in its production. But if we don't maintain an obedient love-faith relationship with Christ, we won't produce fruit. And if we don't produce fruit, we lose God's favor or cherries. He cuts us off of the vine, and our dried up branches thrown in the fire to be burned. 3. On the other hand, if we faithfully maintain this obedient love-faith relationship, if we, patiently continue in doing good, as Paul puts it, then we inherit eternal life. Is that wages or is it grace? It's grace, it's cherries. Why? Because merely doing what we're supposed to be doing doesn't entitle us to such a wonderful reward. If we faithfully obey the laws of our country, our country doesn't give us any reward. The only thing it does for us is that it doesn't punish us. But God is, so full of love and trees that He gives us an unbelievable reward, far beyond what our minds can imagine, just for doing what we're supposed to be doing. We can indeed call Him the God of grace.